Well, good morning, Union Chapel. How are you guys doing this morning? Much more awake than the 8.30 service. I appreciate that. Good morning. Good morning. So good to be with you. Thanks for being here. Those of you who are tuning online, good to see you guys as well. Well, I am so excited. My name is Christopher Glotzbach. I get to serve as one of the 180 pastors here at Union Chapel, our 7th through 12th grade ministry. And this week, we were kicking off a five-week sermon series entitled Real Relationships. And real relationships are, and you fill in the blank. And before you check out, okay, before you, you quit listening to what I have to say, just let me encourage you. Let me challenge you to lean in over the next five weeks because I really believe that the Lord has something for every single person in this room. Whether you're married for 55 years, whether you're single and not even looking at anybody who you might be pursuing, okay? Whether you just had a spouse who passed away, wherever you're at on the trajectory of relationships, I believe that the next five weeks are for you as we dive into real relationships. And this week, the message is entitled, Real Relationships Are Christ-Centered. And what that looks like to keep Jesus at the center of all of our relationships, our, our marriages, our dating relationships, our relationships with coworkers and people in our classroom, whoever that is, real relationships are Christ-centered. And what we do with that and how we encourage and admonish one another through that. And I thought that the best way to kick off a relationship series was just with the words of Jesus himself. And it's our custom here at Union Chapel to stand as we hear the word of God. We'll be reading out of Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34. If you want to turn in your Bibles to that, it'll also be up on the screen. But here are the words of Jesus. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You may be seated. I hope that the Lord inspires you through the hearing and receiving of God's word. Well, here is something that we don't engage with too often. We often in the church talk about the great commission, which Jesus shares with his disciples before ascending into heaven. He commands his disciples to go into all the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus, that he's died for our sins and that we can have re reconciled relationship with him when we give our life to Jesus. But we don't often talk about the great commandment. This is called the great commandment, to love the Lord with everything that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus has found himself in the text this morning debating with a lot of the religious leaders of the day, talking about which of the ten, of the ten commandments, which is the most important. And they're going back and forth, and the man asks, he, he's bold enough to say, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? As you're trying to unpack and understand the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus shares the right answer. 
And this was a prayer that the Jewish people would pray every morning before they would get out of the house, right before they got out of bed, they would pray this prayer called the Shema. They would pray it to book in the day. In the morning and before they go to bed at night, it's the Shema, which just says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And they would pray that as a reminder that this is centralized in their theology. It's centralized in our theology even today. But Jesus, as he does, he takes it a step further. And in other translations and other texts that use this illustration, Jesus says the second commandment is like it. It is equally as important. And it is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we dive into a sermon series on relationships, on real relationships, know that all of us, every person in this room is commanded to be in relationship, relationship with God, relationship with one another. And so I really believe that there is something for all of us here in this room. Here's the first truth about relationships. The first one is this, that we all need relationships. Every single person in this room needs to be in a relationship of some sort in order to get through life. And I love that in the beginning of scripture, in Genesis chapter two, it'll be up on the screen, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. God had just gotten done the former previous five, six days creating earth and everything in it. He created the heavens and the earth. He created light and darkness. And we had perfect relationship with God. Sin had not yet entered the world. And so we were walking, the scriptures say that that humanity was walking with Jesus, walking with the Holy Spirit, walking with God. And there was nothing that separated us from that. We had perfect unity. But it's very interesting that as God was looking down at humanity, at Adam, he was saying it was not good for Adam to be alone. He, He was saying before sin, enter the world, it was not good for man to be alone. And so it's very interesting that we have to be in relationship with one another. And so what do we do about that? If we all need to be in relationships and we all have relationships, you look around, we're all in relationships because we need them. And so whether you're a parent or a sister or brother or grandparent, or you're in a marriage covenant with someone, or you just have coworkers that are around you or friends, neighbors, we all have relationships. There are people all around us that are able to be in relationship with us. And then the last point is this, these truths about relationships is that we get to choose relationships. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And so the apostle Paul is saying, hey, listen, we have the ability to choose the people that we get to do life with. You get to choose your partner. You get to choose people that you're in fellowship with. You get to choose the church that you attend and belong to. You get to choose the neighborhood that you get to move into. But here's the thing, that even though we get to choose relationships, there are relationships that we're in that we didn't get to choose. You didn't get to choose the family that you were born into. You didn't get to choose the children that are in your life. You didn't get to choose who just happens to be working alongside you at the office or your neighbors at times. So there are communities in which we don't get to choose. But here is this timeless truth that we're still commanded to love all of them, to engage with them. And I would encourage you to be praying about the people around you. 
be praying for opportunity to get to know them and to engage with them. Here's the challenge that I've been wrestling with over the last few weeks as I've been preparing for this message is who are we as a church, as a congregation, who are we engaging with the gospel? Who are we praying for? Who are the neighbors or the coworkers or the family members that we're inviting into fellowship with Jesus? Because there are people all around us. And so I would encourage you not to just overlook the people that are around you. I know for me, there are a few neighbors that I'm like, goodness, I am so frustrated with you. Why don't you just mow your grass, you know? And, and I'm like, just do it. Just, just get up and mow your grass. And I can get a little frustrated with that. And they hate my dogs. We have a few dogs that are just so annoying. And recently I was like, you know what? There's no way that we're going to be in community with one another until I pray until I just invite the Lord into this space and just say, Jesus, I know that we're not off to a good start. You know, I'm angry at him, he's angry at me. And so what does it look like for me to invite the Lord into that opportunity for potential to be able to engage with him and his wife? Because I, I'm, I believe with all that I am that I have something for him and he has something for us. And so what does it look like? Because neither one of us are moving anytime soon, I don't think. And so what does it look like for me to Go and get to know him, to pursue him, to pray for him. Here's the other thing in choosing relationships. So not only do we pray about the relationships that we can and cannot choose, but this, I want to encourage you and challenge you to be in a mentorship relationship, to have somebody in your life who is speaking the word of God over your life, over your marriage, over your family, over your job, whatever that is, but someone that you are gleaning from. And maybe you're in the room right now and you're like, Christopher, I am 75 years old. There is no one that I can glean from. I know it all. Well, kudos to you. I hope that I get to arrive at that level one day, but let me challenge you that you're not there yet and you have something to learn. And for me, I know that I'm not that old, but I know for me, there have been moments in my life when there's been something so attractional about the way that this person is living out their faith that I go up to that person and I'm saying, hey, can we grab coffee together? I want to learn a little bit about what you're reading in scripture. You're in your take on Philippians 4. Tell me more about that. I, I want to glean from you. I want to learn from you. And so I want to challenge you that you need someone speaking into your life. Because if you don't have someone speaking into your life at a mentorship level, you're probably not walking as closely to Jesus as you could be. And so go and pursue that. And then also, there, that, that's a double-edged sword that you're asking to be mentored by someone, but I would encourage you to be mentoring people. Be mentoring a couple. I know that after the 1130 service today, my wife and I are going out to lunch with a couple to do their premarital counseling. We're gonna start meeting with them over the next few months to walk them through premarital counseling. And we believe it as a family. I believe it as a man that I need to be walking closely with other young men in our small group and in our, in our youth group and, and just saying, hey, look, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And why do we do that? Why do we mentor and why do we ask to be mentored? Because there's something that happens when in that relationship, when we invite people into our life and when we in, just kind of push onto other people that we're into their life now, we get closer to God. I promise you. I cannot tell you how many times that I've thought that I've been mentoring someone and I'm sitting down across from them and we're opening up the scriptures and we're reading together something and I'm just saying, hey, what's sticking out to you? And they speak into my life, life transformation. There's something so beautiful about it. And so as we choose relationships, what does it look like for you to choose good company? What does it look like for you to do that? 
And so as I engage with this, as, as we continue with these real relationship series, this idea that real relationships are Christ-centered, well, what differentiates Christ-centered relationships from just regular relationships? And I, and I don't think that I need to delve too deep into this because I think that we can see it. We can see the fruit that relation, just plain old relationships produce, and we see the fruit that Christ-centered relationships produce. There's differences here. And so I just have three quick points for us this morning about how these Christ-centered relationships differentiate from other relationships in the world. Here's the first one, that Christ-centered relationships forgive. And you might be thinking, Christopher, I've been in relationships with coworkers who don't know Jesus, who aren't attending church, who aren't reading scripture, who aren't engaged in that type of relationship, and I've wronged them, and they've forgiven me. Well, here's the difference. Christ-centered relationships forgive because they've been commanded to forgive. It's actually centralized in our doctrine that we ought to forgive people. And, and Jesus goes on to say that if you refuse to forgive a brother and sister who has sinned against you or has wronged you, God will refuse to forgive you. And so I want to challenge you and to encourage you, what does it look like to really forgive to forgive, and, and it will cost you something. I believe that. I, I don't just stand up here lightly and say, oh, just forgive someone. You've probably been very, very wrong by someone who deserves to, to be treated poorly because of the way that they've treated you. But Jesus is encouraging us and, and going very far out of his way to, to make forgiveness centralized to his statement of faith and to his mission. In Matthew 5, we read about this in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus shares this in verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And you might be reading that or you might be hearing that and you're like, okay, what's the big deal? You just hop into your car, your Tesla, and you drive across town and you go and make reconciliation with your brother or sister that you've been wronged by or that you've wronged them. It's no big deal. Well, I am sure that as the first century hearers of Jesus were receiving this word from Jesus himself, they were distraught. They were probably a little frustrated and angry because many people would take a trip once or twice a year to the temple to lay a sacrifice at the altar and to get penance, forgiveness for their sins. And they would walk three, four, sometimes up to 11 days to get to the temple to be able to sacrifice for forgiveness of their sins. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I know that you've just walked 11 days to get here, but if you're about to sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and you remember that you wronged your neighbor or that your neighbor wronged you and there's just unrest in that relationship, leave your sacrifice at the table and go and be reconciled to them. And they're probably thinking, wait, you want me to walk back 11 days to go back to my hometown to make peace with this person and then walk back again 11 days? So I've now just spent 33 days on forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, exactly. This is how centralized forgiveness is for Jesus. He's saying it's a really, really big deal. And we'll unpack that a little bit more here in a little bit. But Christ-centered relationships forgive. Why do, we, why do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. And so we have to lean into that. The second truth about Christ-centered relationships is this. Christ-centered relationships are a gift. 
They are such a gift. And I want to encourage you that if you acknowledge Christ-centered relationships as a gift, that you will hold on to them, that you will prioritize them, that you will engage with them, that you will water them, that you will take care of them, that you will protect them. In the book of Proverbs, we read in the story, Pastor Greg reminded us last year as we were walking through the story, about Solomon. And Solomon is deemed as one of the most wise and influential men of all time. And he was given a challenge by the Lord. The Lord came and and he revealed himself to Solomon and he said, Solomon, I've seen you. I've seen your faithfulness. I want to give you a gift. And the gift is ask anything and I will give it to you. Ask for power or money or whatever it is, I'll give it to you. And Solomon sat down and he thought about it for a while and he said, you know what, God, the thing that I want is I want wisdom. I don't know if that was what I would ask for because that sounds like a weird request, but the Lord saw Solomon and his request and he blessed Solomon because of it. And Solomon goes on to write the book of Proverbs, which is just steeped in wisdom and and really powerful, profound truths. But throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon writes about three types of people. Here are the categories of people that Solomon writes about. He writes about the wise, he writes about the unwise, and he writes about the fools. And let me introduce them to you and explain a little bit about who these three types of people are. The wise are the people who are walking with God, who understand Jesus and understand the ways in which Jesus has called them to live. And they're saying yes to Jesus. They're walking in his way. The second are the unwise, the people who have yet said yes to Jesus, who might not understand the truths about theology and understanding who God is and the purpose that God has for their life. And so they just don't understand. They're just walking kind of aimlessly through life. And then the third are the evil, the fools. They're literally evil people in this world. We see it in a profound way is all around us, people who just want to bring destruction into the world, just to watch the world burn, because that is just what they enjoy. They love wrecking havoc on the world. And so there are these three types of people, the wise, the unwise, and the fools. And this is what Solomon writes about the wise and the unwise and the fools. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, he says, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. And so he's communicating here that when we walk with the wise, when we walk with people who have committed their lives to Jesus, that have said yes to Jesus, we will become more like Jesus. And when we walk with the people who have not yet said yes to Jesus, there's just pain and suffering that happen as a result of it. So walk with people who are walking with Jesus. It's so important. It's so important to who we are and what we're doing. Here's my last and final point that Christ-centered relationships are Christ-centered. And you might, you might be looking at that and like, nah, that is very obvious, I get it. But let me, let me unpack that. Let me tell you about what that means. When, when we're in Christ-centered relationships that are Christ-centered, this is what it looks like. They bear fruit. They produce something that is beneficial. We read about this in John 15, what it looks like to bear fruit. They are eternal. They're going to last forever. They're going to be life-giving. You're going to leave those fellowship times together. Just, man, I'm so glad that we did that. I'm so glad that we did that. I know for my wife and I, a couple weeks ago, outside of our small group and a few selected friends on staff, we really struggle with being in Christ-centered relationships. 
And my wife and I, we were eating dinner in our kitchen a few weeks ago. And as I was preparing for this message, I was feeling convicted about the people that we're giving our time to. And I just looked at Brittany and I said, Brittany, we have to do a better job of pursuing people that are living for Jesus. And before you hear me, I'm not communicating to you that you don't just not hang out with any people who aren't believers. Because Jesus spent a heck of a lot of time with the sinners and tax collectors, the people who were ostracized for their community. So I'm saying spend time with them, be on mission. We're gonna talk about that next week as uh, real relationships are mission-minded. We're gonna be engaging with that next week. So I'm not saying that at all. Don't, Don't incorrectly hear me. Lean into those relationships. But what I'm saying is it was imbalanced. We were hanging out with so many people who were not living for Jesus, and it was like sucking the life out of us. It was, it was hurting our relationship together. It was re- hurting our relationship with other people because we were just being robbed of it because we're giving, 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 giving as we're engaging in those relationships. And so my encouragement is to be in relationships that are re- you're receiving from, that are pouring into you, that are giving life to you because that is what we're commanded to do. Christ-centered relationships are Christ-centered. And so be prayerful about that. So I asked my wife, just really strategically, I said, Brittany, because I can hang out with anybody. My wife, on the other hand, has trouble with people at times, okay? And that's no indictment on her. I love that about her, okay? I love my wife, and I love that about her. And so I said, Brittany, who are the people that you enjoy being around, who give you life? And let's just go hang out with them and be friends with them and engage with them and just have fun with them. And so that's what we've been doing. And it's been so life-giving to just be able to hang out with people who give us life, but are also connected to the vine of Jesus, that are being fed by the Holy Spirit and, and revealing God more and more to us. And so get involved in a small group. I am so thankful for my small group that my wife and I are in. It is so life-giving. Yeah, they're all over here sitting together. I love you guys. And they paid me to say that, to give them a shout out. So if you're not in a small group, get into one. Get connected. Go and talk to uh, our connections pastor, Jeff Hughes, and say, hey, I desperately need to be involved in a small group. Because when we're not connected to each other in community, it will wreak havoc on your life. Because I've seen it time and time again. In Colossians chapter three, the apostle Paul writes about what it looks like to be in a Christ-centered relationship. And here are the characteristics. If you want to determine if you are in a Christ-centered relationship or not, hold your relationship up to Colossians chapter three and just side by side, see what it looks like. And this is what the apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And here's that idea again about forgiveness. And forgiveness is always going to cost you something. It cost Jesus his life. To be reconciled to us in community, it cost him giving himself over for the forgiveness of our sins. And so it's painful It's painful to forgive. When we forgive, we're letting go of power. We're letting go of control and we're saying, hey, I know that you hurt me, but I'm I'm inviting you back into my life. And so we were commanded to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, he continues to write, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And how do we do that? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. There he's talking about the types of things that we can do in community with other believers. We're thankful about that. And then he goes on to say, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so that's an encouragement, but it's also a challenge to all of us in this room that we need to be pursuing those types of relationships found in Colossians 3, to go out of your way, to be inconvenienced for them. It will cost you something. It will cost you sanity and time. It will be painful at times because relationships are messy and they're not perfect. And so that's why there's this challenge throughout scripture to just over and over and over and over again, we forgive. We keep on forgiving people because we're just broken and we're messed up people. I've been uh, reading a lot of Brennan Manning lately and Brennan Manning, he's written a lot of profound books that have had impact on my life. And I was reminded of this uh, story that he shares in one of his books. Brennan Manning was alive uh, in the early 2000s. He, he passed away in the early 2000s, uh, but he was a, a, a really great theologian and he was also a professor and was in vocational ministry there for a time as well. And he wrote this book called The Furious Longing of God. And he gives this illustration on the importance of relationships. And in the early 60s, Brennan Manning was teaching at a university on campus in Ohio, in Northeast Ohio. And there was a, a student that he met by the name of Larry Mullaney. And Larry Mullaney, uh, Brennan writes, was maybe the ugliest person inside and out that he had ever met. And he had the lowest self-esteem of anyone that he had ever met before. He wrote that every morning when Larry would get up and look at himself in the mirror, he would spit at himself at the sight of what he saw. Larry was short and extremely obese. He had a terrible case of acne. He had a terrible speech impediment. He had terrible, greasy, unwashed hair. He wore dirty, wrinkled clothes that hadn't been washed in months, and he didn't wear any shoes. It was safe to say that no one on campus wanted to be around Larry, but Larry would pick these fights with people, especially with Brennan. Brennan Manning, he was a, a, a theologian, but he was on a secular campus. And so often, Larry Mullaney would go into Brennan's office and just start dogging him for his belief in God. Because Larry was a self-proclaimed agnostic. He didn't believe in anything. And so all the time, he would go back and forth to Brennan Manning's office just to hound on him, just to give him a hard time. And one day... Near the tail end of his freshman year on campus, Larry went home for a break. And he would go home during this break to his family in Rhode Island, and he sat down every night for dinner with his family. And his family were staunch Irishmen. I didn't know what that meant, so I had to look it up. And so we can expect that Larry's family would be dressed to the tens every night as they would enter into dinner. Larry's father probably was wearing a, uh, a sport coat or a jacket, a suit and tie, and he was just crisp. He probably clean shaven, just very proper. He would speak in a low and subdued voice, never too extreme. But his son would come home and during these meals smelling like a billy goat. And it was so frustrating for Billy's father. They would always clash about this. Like, why aren't you taking care of yourself why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And it was just back and forth, just this, this menace 
back and forth. And this was a typical experience that Larry would go into. This was his life. And towards the end of the break, Larry told his father that he was going back to the university. And Larry's father replied, hey, how about I ride on the first leg of your trek toward the airport, and then I'll get off and I'll I'll go back home. And so Larry said, okay. And so they decided on a time to leave early that next morning, and they both hopped onto the bus, and they rode for an hour in complete silence, which was usual for him and his relationship with his father, Larry and his father. And if they weren't silent, it just was bickering back and forth, yelling at one another. And as they came to the first stop, Larry and his father walked off the bus, and and Larry's father noticed that there were six men across the street, six men that he worked with at the textile factory. And as Larry and Larry's father made eye contact with these six men, these six men started hurling insults at Larry. Man, if if Larry was my boy, I, I I would hide him in the basement and I would lock the door because I would be so embarrassed of having a son like that. And they wrinkled up their nose and they started making pig noises, oinking at Larry. And it was interesting for Larry's father to see this and to witness this and to see how Larry responded. Larry was unbothered by it. He didn't even bat an eye. He, he already heard all of these things before. It was nothing new to Larry. And Larry was about to transfer to the next bus and his head was down. And as he was about to board the bus, Larry ran over to his son. Larry's father ran over to his son and he, and he grabbed Larry by the shoulder and he, he ripped him off the bus. And Larry thought, oh no, here we go again. Right before I leave, I thought that this was going to be a good trip back to the university. And Larry and Larry's father, they make eye contact. And Larry's father just looks deeply into Larry's eyes and he embraces him. He just gives him a huge hug and he kisses him on the cheek. And he says to Larry, Larry, if your mother and I were to live to 200 years old, it wouldn't be long enough to thank God for how He has made you. Larry, I am so proud of you. I am so proud to be your father. And Larry reports to Brennan that that was the first time since he could remember that his father ever embraced him. And Brennan writes about the change that happened as a result of this encounter. He said that it was hard to put into words. He said that Larry cleaned up and he got into shape and he started being in relationship with other people. He even started dating a girl. And then he joined a fraternity. And not only did he get involved in a fraternity, later he became the president of that fraternity. He graduated with a 4.0 GPA, which had never been done before on that campus. And he was quite the scholar, asking serious questions and and growing in wisdom. And one day, Larry walked into Brennan's office and he said, tell me about this man, Jesus, that you've been defending all these years. And so Brennan and Larry had these beautiful and rich conversations, and and Brennan started to share with Larry the ways in which Jesus had revealed himself through the Holy Spirit. And after those six weeks were up, Larry said, okay, this is what I want to start living for. And on June 14th, 1974, Larry was ordained in ministry in Rhode Island, and he spent the next 20 years of his life as a missionary in South America, totally sold out for Jesus. And, and why? Why did that happen? Why did, did Larry change the trajectory of his life? It's because of his father's decision to bless him. 
His father healed his son by his blessing. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry Mullaney that Larry couldn't see for himself. And he affirmed him with furious love and it changed the whole direction of Larry's life. And guess what, my friends? We have the same capacity. We have the same ability with people that we're around. We're connected to so many people each and every day, and we have the ability to speak truth in a life-giving way because we're connected to truth. Jesus says that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes through the Father except through him. And so if we're connected to God, we have the ability to speak life transformation out of our mouth into people. But in the same way, we have the ability to speak destruction. And for so many years, Larry's father was speaking destruction over Larry's life. And then one day it clicked for Larry's father. He said, no more. Larry, I see you. I'm so proud of you. I love you. And so the challenge is, is, is as we're called to forgive in these relationships, and as we kick off this relationship series, where are the steps that you need to take? What are the steps that you need to take to put Jesus back in the center of your relationships? Maybe it's you personally. Maybe you've been disjointed from God. Maybe you haven't been spending time with the Lord. And this isn't just something that you need to strive for. But man, just to sit at the feet of Jesus and just say, Jesus, I I need more of you in my life. Help me. Help me to see the people around me the way that you see them. Give me opportunity to love my neighbor well. Bring to mind the ways in which I can speak to him that are going to be life-giving to him or her. Maybe it's in a strange relationship with a a kid. Maybe you're a parent in this room and you haven't talked to your son or daughter in years. Well, I want to encourage you to pick up your phone and just apologize, to say you're sorry. And maybe they did everything and they're the reason that this relationship is broken. I would encourage you still to extend forgiveness because Jesus, whom was perfect, got up on a cross to, to be reconciled to us, to pay the price. And so in the same way, we ought to do it. And so what are the steps? This week, I want to challenge you this week to just engage with God. God, where are my relationships off kilter? How can I put you back at the center of my relationship with you and with other people? And I promise you that if you engage with that, if you sit down at the feet of Jesus, he will respond to you. He will speak to you. He will give you what it is that you need to hear. And my encouragement is just to start taking those steps, step by step to quit striving to try to make those relationships work and trust in Jesus. Trust Jesus. I just want to pray for us this morning, but I want to encourage you that this is a perfect opportunity, a perfect day, that as I was, I was sharing about relationships, maybe you need to take a step toward Jesus today. And so I want to encourage you that if you've never given your life to the Lord, to, to, today's a day. Today's a great day to do that. And so as I'm praying, maybe there's something that stirs inside of you. The altars are open just to come and lay that at the foot of the cross. Maybe there are relationships that have been unreconciled for years. And you're thinking, there's no way that we can ever make amends of this relationship. Jesus is a miracle-working God. I've seen him in my brokenness in my relationships with other people. I've seen the ways that the Lord has restored those. And so keep leaning on Jesus Keep pursuing him. Keep giving that prayer to God because he hears you.
Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God that wants to work in miraculous ways, that you want to restore relationships. God, we thank you that when we're in Christ-centered relationships that we can be ourselves, that we can be free because we know that when we're in community with other Christ followers that there's forgiveness, that there are gifts that we can receive by being in Christ-centered relationships. God, I pray that we would start to prioritize these relationships in our life and I would pray that we would see fruit that happens as a result of it. Lord, I pray for the brokenness in relationships in this room, that you would restore them, that you would give peace to the minds of people, give them the words to say, to bring wholeness and fulfillment back into relationships. So Jesus, we trust you, we thank you for the gift of relationships. We praise you and it's your name we pray, amen.